0: Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman.
1: My first job after college paid me $6 an hour. I was doing what would now be considered old-school paste-up and layout for a fledgling cable magazine. And because I enjoyed it so much, I couldn't believe that I was actually getting paid to do this very special thing that I loved. I actually never wanted to leave the office. I was the first person in every morning, and I happily stayed way into the night. The evenings in the office were my favorite. I would busy myself drawing box pictures with a rapidiograph, but this activity was simply a shroud to eavesdrop on the real designers sitting in the bullpen as they compared notes on the latest issue of the Soho News or who was going to see Richard Hell at CBGB's that weekend. I knew I was out of my league, and I knew they were better than me, but I projected the fantasies I had of what my life could be onto their lives and imagined that I was one of them, but still me, only better. What I coveted most was the easy confidence they had in their design ability, and while I worked on mine, I watched and waited and wished for a moment when they might accept me. All that changed when Penelope DeRossi was hired. Penelope was tall and thin, and she had a swingy brunette bob with lazy bangs that brushed the tips of her eyelashes. She had the coolest hosiery I had ever seen and sported leotards in fuchsia and yellow and sky blue. Some had stripes, some had geometric patterns, some had textures that allowed you to see through to her long, pale legs. At only five-four, Penelope towered over me, and when we met, I felt her squint trying to figure me out. In that instant, I knew she didn't like me. Penelope was everything I wasn't. She was lean and breezy, effortlessly chic and slightly haughty. And she was smart and sardonic and droll. I, on the other hand, was chubby and overeager. I bit my nails and wore gray corduroy gaucho skirts with matching heels. Penelope had an Italian boyfriend she lived with in a swanky loft uptown. I lived in a fourth-floor tenement railroad flat and had to pass through my married roommate's bedroom in order to get to mine. Everyone liked Penelope, and her arrival brought on a fiery jealousy I had never felt before. I wanted to look like Penelope. I wanted to dress like Penelope and talk like Penelope. Looking back on it now, I realize I simply wanted to be Penelope. Suddenly, my six-dollar-an-hour job wasn't enough. Becoming a good designer wasn't enough. I needed to buy new clothes and new shoes, and I needed a new haircut and new thighs and a new life. Everything about me was utterly awful and wretchedly wrong. I didn't have enough money to buy the clothes I wanted, but I bought them anyway and charged them to my brand new American Express card. But when I went to work in my new duds, I still felt shabby next to Penelope, and I knew that no matter what I did and how much I tried to change who I was, I would never be like Penelope. And I hated myself even more. When I opened my American Express bill, I felt nauseous. I didn't have enough to pay it, so I asked my mother for a loan. She didn't have much money either, but she gave me what she had after I swore I would repay her. And though I managed to scrape by, I never seemed to have as much as I needed. I wanted new things, and I kept wanting more. I told myself that if I could just save $1,000, everything would be okay. I would pay my bills and buy a few new things, and I would feel better about myself. I would be secure. I could feel safe. And with that... Despite the fact that I still actually loved my job, I started thinking that perhaps I should try to find another one that paid better. And I did. Shortly thereafter, I was offered a job at a real estate development company in Westchester as their director of marketing. It was a big title with a big increase in salary. Now I would be making $25,000 a year. And it came with a car. I took it. Everyone congratulated me on my good fortune and the potential of this prestigious new opportunity. But after the last day at my old design job, I went straight home and, fully dressed, climbed into bed, pulled the blankets over my head, and cried. I hated my new job for the entire time I was employed there. I hated the work and I hated real estate, and I hated the drive back and forth every day, and it took me a whole year to save the $1,000 I needed to ensure my financial future. I thought about this money every day on the long gray drive to and from work. But by the time I reached my goal, I realized that I actually needed $2,000 to feel really safe. Or maybe I would need more. And just when I settled in on what it would take for me to feel impervious to life's challenges, I looked out at that long gray landscape and remembered there was a sexy pair of black suede boots at Bloomingdale's that I had my eye on. And I realized then and there that I had to keep driving. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is Gong Zito. Before we get started with our interview, let me tell you a little bit more about him. Kang Zito recently served as the Director of Design and Product Design at Peak Six Investments, a proprietary equity options trading firm, hedge fund, and new financial services business incubator based in Chicago. He recently designed Options House, a next-generation retail equity options brokerage, garnering top-in category in design and usability in Barron's in 2008 and 2009. He was formerly Chief Creative Officer of Publicly Traded Rare Medium, Inc., and Principal at New York-based IO360 Digital Design, Inc. Gong is a career entrepreneur, most recently launching the Options House retail brokerage with Peak6, and co-developing the Moon Units Live-Work-Urban Infill Development in Austin, Texas as partner at Seto Brothers Ventures, Inc. He holds a U.S. patent in on-demand interactive advertising and digital tele- television, co-invented with Sony Corporation of America. Gong has lectured worldwide. He was included in ID Magazine's ID40 40, Top 40 Designers in the U.S. and Europe in 1996, and he has work in the permanent collection of the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art and the Smithsonian's Cooper Hewitt Museum. Welcome, Gong. I'm
2: thrilled to be here, today.
1: Oh, I'm so thrilled to have you here. So I read that you, were, when you were very little that you wanted to be an astronaut or an artist, but because your math skills and your eyesight were so bad, becoming an astronaut was out of the question. So I want to know when you realized that you wanted to be a graphic designer.
2: Well, that happened, um, I guess, around high school. I went to, you know, a very hoity-toity prep school in Houston, Texas. Um, what made it hoity-toity? Well, it was a very rich kids' school. It's private school, um, and prep school, meaning it, you know, its focus was on getting kids into Ivy League schools, mm-hmm. and. One thing that I did there was um, I was always interested in art um, and science, um, but my I discovered you know given the coursework there the uh, my math skills were terrible, and so what I had left uh, was art, and the art program there was non-existent and they didn't have an art um, appreciation um, uh, club or anything so I created that um, and so that was I think my first foray into um, being active in creating things.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, you studied architecture, and you received your degree from the University of Texas at Austin School of Architecture and Planning in 91. And I read that you've described it as a very pragmatic, well-rounded program studying in the wild and woolly late 80s. And I was wondering why you described it as wild and woolly.
2: Well, the 80s, as you remember, I mean, was... Um you know, um, you know, Euro haircuts and uh, conspicuous consumption and hanging out th- at malls and MTV and VH1, et cetera. I mean, it was, by all intents and purposes, it was, in terms of, uh, you know, symbolic and material culture, um, a huge time. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, you know, with regards to, you know, I originally started, you know, studying art, and uh, th- I remember one my career then sort of ended one semester where scatological art was really kind of all the rage at the time, and mm-hmm. to the senior, went to the senior show, and all the paintings were covered in shit, and I just couldn't deal, so <laughs> I walked across campus to the architecture school, and I saw these, like, really cool models, and they didn't smell of anything. Other so than when you glue. say shit,
1: you're actually talking about actual quite, literal quite shit, literal not, not conceptual.
2: Yeah, yes. so I was like, okay, and I'm kind of, you know, I've got this sort of OCD germ thing, so um, I, I can do architecture, and so, but for me at the time, it was so not about buildings per se, but it was about the models.
1: Now, at that time, when you, so you graduated from school and you worked as an architect for several years yes, before you changed uh, careers, and at the time you described your work as conventional and weird at the same time, drawing heavily from the early pamphlet architecture series, mm-hmm. which was just getting off the ground then. So, first of all, what does that mean, the early pamphlet architecture series?
2: Well, uh, Princeton Architectural Press was just getting off the ground at that time, mm-hmm. um, and they published these, you know, mostly black and white, you know, from laser printer, you know, monographs of uh, very edgy architects at the time, like Neil Denari, um, um, really young uh, uh, architects in Europe, East Coast, West Coast. And I was really inspired by that. And I think that was sort of my reconciliation with the fact that there is mainstream X and there's also fringe Y, -hmm. you know, in any, you know, creative discipline. mainstream
1: x and fringe y i like that
2: yeah so and i think you know um you know every designer i'll just sort of say generally speaking every designer i think wants to kind of locate themselves you know in which bucket you Mm -hmm. know one or the other or both and a lot of a lot of things are informed by the professors the ideology of the school and uh, UT Austin was fairly pragmatic, so what was novel was French. Mm-hmm. And so um, was very inspired and influenced um, by things that were, you know, slightly to very left of center. And would you still describe your work as that now? Well, from the standpoint of, you know, for the last, you know, 15 years or so, I mean, I've been, you know, practicing, you know, paid designer in various contexts. Um, but I think that there is a threat, you know, ever since I graduated, which was a, uh, a discomfort with what it was I did. You know, I was, I think I was, you know, good at what I did and I added a lot of value and I, you know, built buildings and launched lots of projects. I moved from architecture into, you know, web design in 94.
1: Uh, now, what was, why did you do that? What happened that made you decide to go from architecture to web design?
2: Well, I was um, always interested in computers. You know, read William Gibson's novels about cyberspace, and you know, I always sort of had my head in clouds about you know with something else other than what I w- what I was supposedly you know f- supposed to focus on. And so, you know, really into technology, kind of a computer geek, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so, I knew way back then that. Um, you know, the internet was going to be this just huge thing, you know, and I didn't know how huge it would Mm -hmm. be, but I just, you know, knew that I wanted to kind of play in that sandbox. Mm -hmm. Um, My brother, who was a graduate of Cooper Union, actually founded a multimedia design firm in New York. Uh, What year was that? This was in 94. Mm -hmm. Uh, And at that time, I was actually an architect in Boston. And I, you know, take the Greyhound bus up to New York and hang out with him on weekends and quickly realized what he was doing was way more fun than what I was doing so I in effect became his first employee and the rest is really history you know.
1: Now I understand that when you were young um, you used to hack into Apple computers.
2: Oh yeah and yeah that I did. My brother and I did. The very first thing we had an Apple 2 Plus it had um, you know a, a monochrome green screen that only right. had 40 columns so the text was really wide mm-hmm. and I didn't like that. I think that you know, text on the screen should be more dense. So I figured out a way to hack the video card to give me 80 characters.
1: Uh-huh. So
2: at that time, oh, so I remember. was about this? What year was this? Oh, this this is probably when I was like 10 or 11. Oh my God. Um, uh, <laughs> Where type on the screen was a pretty important thing. <laughs> oh, I haven't thought about that in a while. But yes, um, yeah.
1: So, so you started working with your brother. And you ultimately sold that company.
2: Yes, we did. Who did
1: you sell the company to? Uh,
2: a firm called Rare Medium, which was a, a competitor of ours at the time, but they did a backdoor um, IPO, became public, and just grew, grew, and grew. And it was around, you know, 98 where a lot of big companies were doing, were rolling up, you know, small design firms. Mm-hmm. Uh, specifically because there was such a burgeoning demand for websites. You know, this was the great kind of dot-com growth period.
1: Right. Now, given your background in—or actually, not background—given your, your interest and involvement with finance, which I'll get to in a little bit, um, just looking back on it all now, I've never actually had somebody like you on the show with this incredibly diverse um, set of interests. So, what would you attribute the dot-com bubble and bust to, if you if you wouldn't mind trying to answer that one?
2: Well, that's um that's both a simple answer and a complicated one depending on how how you want to drill down. I think at the time uh you know, it was the sort of new new. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we had the Dow, we had the S&P, we had the company sort of as we knew and not much had really sort of changed or sort of shook the the landscape. Suddenly, so the internet um uh, came into being. So it was content as king. Then it was e-commerce. Then it was transactions. Then it was you know community and you know et cetera. etc. Cetera. It's like you could do all the stuff you know with this new quote-unquote medium. I mean, it was sort of the last time I referred to it as a medium. Now mm-hmm. it's you know just kind of reality. Um, uh, and I think people were pretty bullish on the possibilities. I mean, it was actually. I mean, you know, I and I was one of them. You know, it was I was not not to knock it. Um, I think what we Saw is the you know the reconciliation between uh, perception and the the sort of financial reality, Mm -hmm. the 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 fact that well no matter what you know bullish notion or sentiment you have on anything it still has to conform to economic laws. Mm -hmm. You know in this case you know these dot coms were businesses and they had to generate revenue in order to sustain themselves and you know suddenly you saw these outrageous um, valuations based on no or negative revenue. And, uh, and there's some, and a lot of echoes of that in, you know, the stuff that's going on today, mm-hmm. which is this, uh, big, huge gulp between sort of perception and reality. And, uh, and, you know, I was, you know, both a beneficiary and victim of, you know, the big blow up at the time. Um, but I think, you know, the, it still has echoes today. What, what happened then?
1: So what made you uh, go into a direction that included Wall Street as part of your expertise?
2: Well, it was totally accidental. I don't think I, you know, I sort of planned it. But one of, uh, we had a number, because we were based in Manhattan, and Manhattan is actually, it may be the best place in the universe to have a design practice because, you know, it's a cab right away to all the various industries that exist, you know, in, in the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so much density here. So, you know, you you didn't have to try very hard to get uh, work from Wall Street. Goldman Sachs, Merrill Lynch, Morgan Chase, they were all my clients at the time.
1: So they were your clients yes. both at the firm that you had with your brother and Rare Media? That's right. And so what did you find compelling about going after business in that discipline initially versus entertainment or <clears throat> media or art or anything else?
2: Well, that's, that's a good question. I um, uh, I mean, kind of apropos to your, your lead-in monologue, um, you know, my parents are Chinese immigrants. They're very practical people. You know, Chinese like to save versus spend, and I was drilled into me at a very young age, debt is bad. And so I learned very early on to have a very healthy attitude about money, and I also knew, uh, given my course through uh, you know, design school that, you know, there were certain attitudes that I had about the finance world and money, et cetera, that was different from a lot of my peers. You know, they trafficked in the world of form. Mm-hmm. And I was probably the one, you know, I was attracted more to pragmatism uh, or criticism on sort of status quo or mainstream things. And money happened to turn out to be one of those things that I found that people in creative disciplines either didn't understand, were afraid of, or felt that they were above. And uh, so that was, you know, kind of hard to deal with at that time. But I think that a healthy attitude about money um, and the, and it's a very complex topic, you know. Mm-hmm. It's, you know money is never about money. The money is never about money. It's, you know, it's, 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 it's about, uh, needs and desires and wants and Just like ex- sex. expectations and <laughs> yeah, yeah etc. And, uh, uh, so I've also, so I guess in a sense, I've always, always been into money.
1: So you, uh, had clients that were on wall street, mm-hmm. uh, then you left rare medium to go to options house. Is that
2: correct? Um, Yes, uh, but there was a period in there when I left. I, I didn't leave. Rare Medium, Rare Medium left me. They sort of imploded. Okay. Um, and then I was out of a job. And then 9/11 happened. And my wife and I at the time decided to leave New York City and settle in New Mexico, which um, is where you are now. Yes, and we still beautiful were we're, Santa. Fe. We're in Santa Fe, um, and. Uh, uh, it was a lot of change, a lot of uh, it was a really re- reflective period. you know, um I was technically retired, you know mm-hmm. at the time I wasn't doing anything. I was just reading lots and lots of books. what um, kind of books oh, mostly economic and political theory um, at the time. Um, it was mostly trying to make sense of what I did in the big you know rush period of the dot-com period, which mm-hmm. I was doing it, I was adding value, they were launching websites left and right, and people were using them, yay, 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 but I didn't really know why. Like, why was it good, you know, where and where's it going? Like, where's where's the life cycle and longevity of these things that I just did? I can't, if you were to ask me, I couldn't explain them, and I thought that was, I should be able to explain that. Could you now? Um, I'm starting, I think, you know, fast forward about 10 years, I think I'm st- I'm I'm kind of at a place now where it's it's starting to make sense to me.
1: Can you... Elaborate, or
2: well, one of the things um, I think a lot about. Uh, you know, I'm a designer. I'm in design. Most of my quote-unquote uh, peer group and cohort are designers, or or you know involved in the design discipline, and they have lots of clients and they work in the industry. And I read all the trade mags and I read you know Design Observer and everything. And 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 again, sort of like the sort of astronaut artist thing, uh, you know. I have a discomfort right now about the discourse. like, And I notice something that's missing. Because in the morning, you know, I'll read, in the same hour, I'll read the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and then Design Observer. And I'll see this huge kind of gulf, you know, from what's the drama of what's happening today. And then we'll move on to a piece. And, and this is... You know, for the record, Design Observer is one of my favorite sites. Mm-hmm. And I think everyone that writes and comments on it are super bright. But one observation I made was, well, why is there this resistance to talk about current events? You know, they're the most dramatic stuff is happening right now. Well, I have to actually
1: say, and, and this is not um, in any way... Uh, segregated to Design Observer. What I find is on any design blog whenever there's any discussion of anything that might be a step away from design Hordes of people start commenting about, well, this is a design blog. Why are we talking about politics? I'm not interested in what so-and-so thinks about the current state of the world. I want to talk about design. And yeah, well, I think it's really tough for a lot of the, the people that run these design blogs because their audiences seem to really repel when you talk about anything other than
2: design. It's it's true, and that's an observation that I've made, and, and it's something that's really flummoxed me because, to me, it's, you know, I, I made a realization recently that... Um, and it's based on my recent experience working in the equities and 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 derivatives, you know, financial space. Um, two concepts, you know, equities, these are stocks, Google, Apple, IBM, you know, we know those as stocks and brands and companies, right? There's a whole other world called derivatives where... Um, uh, you can, uh, you know, trade contracts that bet whether Google's going to go up or down. Right. Right. And, you, you know, they're legitimate and they're real instruments. And so I learned a lot about them in the last, uh, you know, four years, enough to actually build systems that um, are great user experiences for, you know, the average investor to, to, to do well. Uh, then from that I realized, well, well, design is not a thing. You know, design is kind of meta. Design is derives its value from something else, always. Mm-hmm. You know, um, someone <clears throat> seminal play that I read in high school by Luigi Pirandello, Six Characters in Search of an Author. You know, you've got these characters they are on a play, but they don't have a narrative. They don't have a story. They don't have a plot. And so he wrote a play about this play that doesn't have a plot but has characters. And mm-hmm. I, I kind of see it, designers that way. Without... A client, or a project, or a website, or a campaign, or something. We got really not a lot to do, mm-hmm. you know. And I would say 99 percent, you know, maybe 98 percent, but um, close enough. That uh, you know, design derives its value from this thing called capitalism. Mm-hmm. You know.
1: So that's the area that you work in now. How would you describe yourself? Would you describe yourself as a designer? Yes. Okay. Yes. So what do you do, Well, what were you doing at this job that you, up until very recently, had?
2: Well, um, it was simple. The, the company I worked for wanted uh, was a proprietary trading firm, meaning that um, they just traded their own capital in the stock market. You know, it's sort of like, you know, if you were to buy a mutual fund, Debbie Billman, you know, going to Fidelity and buying a mutual fund, and you've just invested something yourself. Right. So what I was working for was basically an entire firm, that had this huge pool of capital that was investing, you know, on their own. They didn't have customers, mm-hmm. right? Where did they get this huge, huge pool of capital? Well, they just really understood really shockingly well how to invest um, in equity options. They, You know, the founders were two former traders. They took some starting capital, and if you really know what you're doing, uh, especially in really volatile markets, you can turn a dollar into a million dollars you can do that. So what exactly is an equity option? It, an equity option is an option contract on a stock.
1: Okay. So that's what you were doing. And it, you were you were building systems around these? Yeah, to trade them. To trade them. Yeah. So how do you do that?
2: Well, you have to sort of understand the nature of what's being traded. You have to understand how other people are trading. Um, uh, other websites like eTrade, Schwab, you know, they all allow you to trade stocks, mostly. You can trade options on them. But the idea is they hired me to design a whole platform that made it really easy to, uh, to trade options, which is kind of a sophisticated and kind of an esoteric instrument. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is what sort of design kind of basically does. So how, so how do you
1: go about doing something like that? What would, you, what would be
2: the process that you would undertake to accomplish this? Well, I, I looked at what, how people are doing it now. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the, the things that I looked at were mostly the tools that professional traders were using. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking like their desk. They have like, you know, 15 monitors in front of them and their charts and graphs and, you know, moving price stickers and everything like that. So how do you distill all of that down to a pro, you know, pro trader, uh, to a retail investor, into one little screen that fits on their laptop? Okay. You know, so there's a tremendous amount of complexity that has to dist- dist- distill down into an interactive system, and so it took me about a year. And did you enjoy it? Oh, yeah. I mean, that was, I mean, it's for me it's sort of the best kind of problem um, is, you know, how to make, you know, such large-scale complexity really accessible to, you know, um, the average person. Uh, and I think design more or less seeks to do that, make things accessible, appealing, desirable. Um, and uh, and I think I'm pretty good at that. And and it was a lot of trial and error, you know. But it was, I had the benefit of working with um, people who have been doing this for decades. So.
1: And what made you decide to leave? You just recently left.
2: Well, I um, look. It was it's a complicated, long story. But the the short of it is, um, I am based in Santa Fe. I work remotely. There was a lot of travel. So the sort of practical side, and you know we. You have we have a new daughter. You have a new daughter, and so, you know, it, the the practical side made it difficult. But at the same time, although I really enjoyed um, the design problems, uh, uh, I saw things that were really fascinating to me, but I also saw a lot of things in the culture of finance that bothered me a lot. For example? Well, they um, are all about money, mm-hmm. and quite literally. Mm. And it's kind of fascinating to be around all these sort of PhDs and these, like, you know, real whippersnappers that just know everything about making a ton of money. And I think, you know, human nature is one that always admires virtuosity of, you know, any sort, you know, whether it's a composer, musician, or artist, or, you know, money maker. trader. hmm. Um, how do, how do, and they're all real young. It's like, whoa, you know, that's amazing. And, you know, I learned a ton of things, you know, myself, you know, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, boosting my own sort of investing strategy and stuff. So that was great, but at the end of the day, you know, you go to happy hours and you know, so what do folks talk about? And they talk about money. They talk about the stuff that you can do with money, and it usually, you know, is about acquiring things. And the thing that I think designers as a whole are wired is not so much acquiring things but creating things mm-hmm. out of nothing, building things, right? So at making things p- and making things. Yeah. So at some point. I found that I was adapting myself more to the culture of finance versus I mean, versus the other way around. Right. And so I felt a little lonely sometimes um, and uh, uh, then I sort of realized, you know, then, you know, our entire economy blew up and the basis of, the, of it was what was going on in really obscure parts of the financial world and which I had been following and I, and I sort of understood it, you know, as it was unfolding and I was like, holy cow, I mean, how do you stop that? So, what is your perspective on what's happening now? I think we are at such an incredibly important and significant inflection point in um, uh, in our world right now because largely what we have taken for granted is the fact that financial institutions are trustworthy and they're okay. You park your money somewhere; it's going to be fine. But you know what we're realizing now? Well, no. You know, one of the very you know fundamental things that we have you know have trusted um, isn't trustworthy. Right. Um, and in a really capitalist environment, depending on sort of the, f- the political milieu, I mean, it has been very, um, uh, conservative for a while, which, you know, believes in small government and it believes in, uh, uh, the free markets, uh, that, um, you know, leave the, f- the free markets alone, everything will take care of itself. And I think we're now realizing, well, that doesn't really work. And so, okay, so is the solution more government intervention? There's a lot of debate on that. I'm not even convinced that that's the case.
1: What do you think about the bailouts?
2: Um, I am so conflicted, you know, about it because there are always going to be consequences, you know, to any action. You know, you sort of, well, the white knight may come in and sort of save the banks, uh, but then you read, well, the banks just, you know, like AIG just, you know, took a bunch of taxpayer money and doled out all these, you know, big fat bonuses to people that, you know, maybe didn't really, you know, deserve it. How
1: does somebody rationalize that? How does somebody rationalize being in a position where they're taking money that's being lent oh, to them? Oh, it's, it's, it's not hard to
2: understand at all. Well, t- tell me why. Yeah, it has to actually do with altruism. You know, if you think altruism is, I mean, I think the standard under- definition of altruism is, you know, you know doing something good for, you know, someone else or, mm-hmm. for, you know, a community or something. Well, the reality of altruism is that you do something good at a cost to yourself, um, it costs you something, so you have to make some sort of decision whether you're going to do it or not. Mm-hmm. And there are, two, there, there are different kinds of altruism. There's this thing called parochial altruism, which is you do things that are, that are good for your tribe. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's another form of altruism called tolerant altruism, which is you do things that are good for all tribes. And I think what we see in the financial space are CEOs or management that are, you know, taking, they see the ship going down and they want to dole out, you know, the last minute bonuses to their friend. They're being altruistic to their own cohort. And so can you bust them for being altruistic? No, you can't. Well, now we can. So it's sort of ambiguous. It's Mm -hmm. sort of kind of confusing right now because they're sort of taking, quote, unquote, our money, our money, you know, towards this end. Um, Do you think it's wrong that the government is now taxing those bonuses 90%? Uh, no, I think it's pretty um, ballsy and cool, and I don't <laughs> know whether it's right or wrong. I don't know if
1: it'll hold up. I can't yeah. imagine that there are going to be some lawsuits around that. Yeah,
2: well, I just, you know, I'm just, I mean, part of me, I mean, I've, I've formed lots of opinions on a lot of various things, but, you know, sort of every day is different, and the drama, I mean, it's always something. It's, inc- it's kind of incredible. It's just incredible.
1: Gong, we uh, have a caller who's been waiting a very long time on the line. We have Gregory from New Jersey. Gregory, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hey, Debbie. Thank you for holding. I know that you were on for a long time.
0: No problem. You know me. I always want to have my say. (laughs) Hi, Gong. Hi. Um, I have two questions, actually. Now, it's it's amazing just listening to you talk. I mean, it's obvious you are a tremendously um, and inherently creative person. So it's very intriguing to me uh, how someone as creative as yourself um, would pursue uh, things like um, studying finance or intellectual property law, which I'm not sure what that is, um, and, and pursuing whole courses of education in business. I mean, first of all, just was it for a, a very specific reason when you were involved with people in the finance industry or was it you were interested or both?
2: Well, I don't think that there was, there's no grand plan. You know, it's sort of my life is all connect the dots. And, you know, Debbie, uh, it should be mentioned that Debbie and I actually met at um, a Harvard summer program, the Harvard Business School, um, and at that time, I was really bullish on the role of design and business and how to promote that and to grow that um, and uh, and in uh, Debbie and I have kept up you know ever since so no there's no grand plan. It was always sort of like whatever I'm doing. Um, is relevant to something else. So again, it goes back to this idea that design is actually sort of meta and doesn't is not really a tangible thing. It, it exists because other things exist. And in that in that case, where W nine meant it, design exists mostly because business exists.
0: I mean, in those classes where people were were just really hardcore finance people in those courses, or did you feel like a fish out of water?
2: Well, the program that she and I were in specifically was sponsored by the AIGA. It was a joint venture between AIGA and, and Harvard. So we were there for, for, was it a couple weeks? Um, and we had sort of a smattering of a quote unquote, you know, you know, MBA light program. It was really intensive. I mean, no, no, no one ever got any sleep. And even before we got there, we had a month's worth of, of work to do, you know, for, for it. Um and it cover everything from, you know, economics to finance to accounting to innovation strategy to management, you know, et cetera. I mean, all the sort of standard... Um, you know MBA uh, fair, so it was it was incredible. I mean, Debbie was um, inspiring to kind of watch <laughs> her because <laughs> I got if goes, I wouldn't be calling
0: it all the time.
2: <laughs> well, um, what's, what's interesting is you have you know Harvard, which is sort of a tra- you know it's, it's a, the best or one of the best you know traditional MBA programs, and suddenly they have this whole student body. Where we're all designers. You know, and so it was really fun. It was the first time we did it. It was the sort right. of the it maiden, charter. It was the yeah. maiden voyage, and so it was kind of fun to see that interaction.
0: And this, the other question I, I do have is, what is on-demand interactive advertising?
2: Well, right now, as you know, the FCC is trying to turn everyone to uh, to digital TV. Right. Um, and it's a whole, you know, it's a whole different, you know, technology infrastructure and uh, and it allows a certain degree of interactivity. Now, now, bear in mind, that patent was, you know, a long, long time ago. It was before, you know, broadband video, and at the time we couldn't really predict the, you know, interactive capabilities of cable and satellite.
1: Remember our stealth cable uh, framework right. exactly. at, at Harvard that summer? <laughs> exactly.
0: It's very interesting. What made you even even think that then?
2: Well, you um, know, it's funny. Sony um, hired me. To, uh, to come up with a bunch of ideas to break a patent. There's a, there was a patent called the Gemstar patent, which was the electronic programming guide, which is the grid that you see on your screen. You know, you have the times and the channels and, and you sort of scroll through. I mean, that's a patent. And if, if someone were to say, well, I'm gonna have a programming guide on my system, I've gotta pay Gemstar like something like $20 million. So that's an expensive royalty. So Sony hired me to kind of think of ways to get around that patent. Um, and, you know, in that work, um, we had a bunch of stuff that just sort of accidentally fell out of it. And uh, the patent that I have was, well, what happens if you see a TV commercial and you click a button on your remote and you can get some, you know, more information or get a coupon that, you know, comes out of your TV to go, you know, buy that product. Um, so that that was essentially, you know, the work that I did. That's really, that was really fun, um, that, that, that whole engagement.
0: Wow. Well, you know what? I'm just, I'm a gog. I don't know what to say. You're just one of the smartest people I've ever listened to, and uh, I could listen to you all day. So just thanks for answering those questions for me.
1: Well, thanks for the call. Thanks, Gregory. Gong, we have another caller. We have Debbie from Chicago. Debbie from Chicago, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. Where'd Debbie go? Well, I guess. Oh, here she is. Oh, did she hang up? I guess she hung up. Okay, maybe she'll call back. Okay, so um, I have. Uh, I want to talk about what you're doing now. Oh, actually, you know what, Kong? Before we do that, we're going to have to talk a little bit more about money. Bernie Madoff, mm. what do you think? How does somebody get away with something like
2: that for so long? Well, I mean, clearly he did. I think uh, what he revealed was a bunch of false positives in people. You know, he carried himself in a way. He had... Um, uh, a history, a reputation that was quote unquote trustworthy, yeah um, he was a real benefactor in various communities, um, so people trusted him, so like you like someone and uh, they have a track record, why wouldn't you give them your life savings? you know because other people have said you know that he's doing fine by them, you know, and I think he um, uh, he 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 trafficked in that for a long time, and a lot of people believed him, and I think the reality was... Uh, uh, things caught up with him. I mean, he was doing the Ponzi Ponzi thing for a long, long time, and so he couldn't do it much anymore. Because you know, during a big recession, everyone kind of wants their cash back, right? So that's but really what precipitated his downfall. Oh no, that was he was he was he was pretty uh, uh, he was pretty he pretty had you know at that point. He just couldn't continue. So, but what I think of him, I, I actually admire. I admire him to the degree that um, he did. He was a virtuoso mm-hmm. at that for such a long time. I mean, may I be so uh, good at something for my career. It just so happened it was entirely, utterly illegal and unethical.
1: Actually, I did read some, I think it was on the Daily Beast, that, that there was uh, a piece about really trying to understand the way his mind worked in terms of trying to come up with some grid pattern or framework to utilize that knowledge for the better. Mm. Um, we do have another caller, Gong. Um, we have Annie. Annie, thank you for calling Design Matters.
0: Hi. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Gong. Hi,
1: Annie.
0: I have a, um, a design-related question. And you're involved with finance, and you're a designer and an architect. Are there any um, corporate identities for in the financial sector that you think have especially awful or especially fabulous um, corporate identities?
2: Oh, well, that's, that's a really interesting question because, you know, the – you know, up until probably the the early 90s, the rule of thumb was heavy serif things that um, echoed trust, trustworthiness, Rock of Gibraltar, you know, it's that, et um, That sort of changed to more sans serif faces. I think the big thing that shook everybody was uh, was Pentagram's um, uh, Citigroup mark. Mm-hmm. You know, let's put an umbrella and all lowercase, whoa, that was pretty radical. Um, But right now, I mean, and Citigroup is, you know, one of the worst offenders or in in the greatest spotlight right now. So there's huge contrast between, again, like this sort of, you know, the mark is this sort of symbolic um, representation of the brand and the brand is a promise. And right now, all the promises are, you know, are no good. So... So, and it doesn't matter whether it's a serif or sans serif bank. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, I remember uh, the
1: talk when uh, during the election, you know, Obama's logo versus McCain's logo. I know.
2: No, it's kind of the same thing. I mean, it's sort of. It's it's. You know, I think it's a great question because so the the, the long answer is not really, and it's been, and it's because of what's going on.
0: Because you can't tie the identity to the business really anymore.
2: No, and I, I think it's going to take time to uh, to build that back up. You know, it, it, what needs to be said is I think it's not that people want to distrust. It's just we've been forced to yeah. distrust.
1: Do you think I mean, there will be a great opportunity for design firms to
0: redesign these identities once things settle out?
2: You're I, going to need to re- Oh, know? absolutely, because, I mean, as Obama, you know, has said over and over again, um, trust is the big issue right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, banks aren't lending to small businesses or individuals people aren't spending because they don't trust what's going on they're scared to death you know and I think design does a lot to communicate and to uh, to decode and you know etc and this big nut which is you know rebuilding trust in the marketplace is is maybe one of design's biggest tasks right now
1: okay thank you very much thank you for calling Thanks, Annie. Sir. I think in addition to design, what has to happen first is that we're going to have to help these institutions reposition themselves and what they mean to the consumer. But speaking of consumers, one of my favorite quotes that I read of yours was that you stated that Americans make better consumers than citizens. Mm. And that really resonated with me, and I wanted to ask you uh, about why you feel that way.
2: Well, I think that we... We live in a material culture in a consumer culture. I have not very much to say to sort of add to that discourse. It's a fairly mature discourse in, and even though it's so mature, we still do it. Uh, we are sort of an interesting time where people are kind of stopping um, the consumption thing. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe it's it's not a stop, maybe it's more of a pause. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it is a period where they're sort of reflecting on it and then suddenly, you know, with the election of Obama and the new or renewed presence of government into the economy, I think government, um, uh, and even the very thing we take for granted, democracy, is becoming much more conscious for people, and I think that's all good. Um, But again, I think if you were to draw a diagram of, you know, an individual or typical, I mean, I'll draw, you know, for me. Uh, my two, you know, two bubbles. My, the bubble of consumer for me is just gigantic. I mean, I buy stuff. I think about brands and design, you know, I, 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 live in, I live in traffic in that material world. And only in the last couple of years have I invested more of myself into the realm of civic participation. So, you have this big bubble and this tiny little bubble. And I think that's probably the reality for most people. I, but I, but what I am really coming to terms with right now, at least for me intellectually and philosophically, is, I mean, our reality is this interplay between uh, free market economics and government. And our experience as individuals is as consumer and as citizen. And I really would like to see uh, one of the outcomes from what's going on right now is that, you know, as a whole, our society becomes much more aware much more smart and much more activist in, in, in the institution of democracy, which is, it really isn't something that we can, t- we can take for granted.
1: Well, to that to that end, you recently left Peak Six to found Fury, uh, which is a completely, as in your words, a completely bootstrapped platform upon which. You will undertake with collaborator- collaborators, applying everything you know in design, open tools, and business models for gigantic migraine-inducing macro world problems.
2: Yeah, I wrote that, didn't I? Yes, you did. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, so, tell me about that. Tell
2: tell us about what that entails and what you plan. Sure. Well, what, uh, there was a project that I did a few months ago called YourOwnDemocracy.org. Um, you can find it on my blog if you go to gongzito.com. And I basically um, try to develop a a uh, real-time voter marketplace. You know, it was really interesting politics at the time. At that time, I just finished doing all of these, you know, big, huge, sophisticated uh, uh, equities trading platforms. Well, you know, I I did something that actually makes capitalism really, you know, speedy and efficient, so why don't I apply what I... What I did, it, you know, to the realm of democracy and and civic participation. So, you know, spent about a week and submitted to the Buckminster Fuller competition. Still waiting to hear back on that.
1: Well, no, actually, didn't you make it to the final? I made the
2: first. Cu- I made the first cut. You made the first cut for um, the Buckminster Fuller. Yes, and that's very exciting. Yes, it's extremely so, exciting. So, just a, it was. You know, there's no client. It was just a concept project. Got lots of uh, support from it. Uh, you know, on on the internet, was invited to Washington D.C. last month to present it. Um, uh, at the Sunlight Foundation, which is uh, all about civic advocacy and government uh, transparency. And, you know, for me, it's just sort of a journey. I mean, there's no end game. There's like I had this idea and suddenly it's taking, you know, so that's really exciting to me. So I left my job at Peak Six um, uh, uh, thinking, well, I can kind of do more of this because I've got a bunch of ideas in my head. Um, and I just kind of want to see where they go, and they are specifically, about looking at um, how design can play a much stronger, much more activist role in the realms of uh, economy and government and politics, you know, et cetera. All of these sort of realms that Debbie mentioned earlier are sort of taboo, you know, in, in typical design discourse. I mean, it's really trying to, it's not even trying to push the envelope, it's just doing an end run on that entire discourse just to see what would happen. And what I'm finding is that there's take. So, so what, what are real-time voter sentiment systems? Well, you know, just say for a moment, uh, you know, you, you probably took a Gallup poll or something during Obama's election. Right. Know? And so you you went to USA Today at com and and saw a couple of bar charts and said, oh, yeah, Obama's winning, winning by three, 3%. And then you went about your business and you went back and you said, well, I want to see that poll again. it's gone. It's gone, you know. And... Uh, but, you know, that's, you know, a president is one issue of a million that mm-hmm. exists, you know, that's on people's minds. So like the stock market, there are 3,000 3, symbols and their prices are changing all the time. So why don't we just sort of keep a track of how everyone's feeling about various things right. and draw a chart and, you know, measure that data. And, you know, the systems that I built in the financial world um, are actually more sophisticated than this idea. So, I, you know, I know that this can be built. And so the whole idea is suddenly you have, you know, Debbie Millman has her own personal, you know, citizen's dashboard. You can Uh sort of, you know, track the stuff that's important to you, um, uh, see what the rest of the nation is thinking about, you know, in your neighborhood, in your state, you know, et cetera. Um, This is designed for 150 million registered voters in the United States.
1: That's extraordinary. Now, you're calling this open
2: source design? It, I, yes, that is what that is what I call it. It's based on this, you know, the open source movement that you see in computer science and, and technology, where uh, there's this big uh, kind of fu to the commercial world, to the you know Microsofts and the proprietary closed systems. Well. You know, it's just code, and so I'm a smart, talented programmer, and there's this kind of cool project that's out there, so I'm going to kind of contribute some code to it to help build it.
1: Right. Well, it's happening in everything. It's happening in media. It's happening in publishing.
2: It is incredible because, especially in light of the fact that there's all this distrust in our economy and this distrust in government, who do we have left? We have ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's, and, it's, and, it's and, and open source is about building. It's about making. And there are no clients. You know, no one's doing this for any real money, Uh, and it's all volunteer, and it's all, um, you know, people are, you know, coding late at night in their pajamas. And I've been meeting a lot lot more people through uh, these various communities that I'm now involved with, and I'm just like, well, hell. I mean, I know lots of smart people in the design community, and they've got some great ideas, but there's no platform. Mm -hmm. There's no, quote-unquote, movement. There's no way to sort of consolidate and organize and to uh, focus it. You know, in, in a way, sort of design is sort of is like a mirror. It reflects society and reality, right? So what I'm saying is, well, let's bend that mirror to something convex and really laser focus that light into heat. And uh, and I think that um, that's one of the next projects that, that Fury is going to work on is it poses the question, like, well, what what is open source design? Mm-hmm. And what does what a platform for that look like? And how do we build that?
1: Now, you believe that this is design's next frontier. Yes. So do you believe the designers are going to be leading this charge or can lead this charge if they take the
2: reins? You know, one thing that should be said, I believe, um, before I was making comments, that design just sort of inherits its value from something else. But there's one property of design that is amazing, and that is what we do is at the interface between uh, a producer, like a client, and an end user or consumer. Right. You know, we think about that. We're, that we're, we're sitting. Where it's a bridge. It's a. It's a thin layer. I don't know what to call it, but we're sitting at the interface, and that's all we do all day long. So it's almost like we see both sides of the fence all, all the time, and that's really an unusual, uh, and and I think great position to be in. I just think that we, as a disciplined profession, um, don't know how to capitalize on that, and I think that's one of the areas that I'm thinking really hard about, um, and. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of insights on both sides to create, right? So, you know, Debbie decides for a moment that she's going to do a project that's going to benefit humanity or some corner of humanity. It has nothing to do with Sterling Brands. It has, you know, there's no client. Mm-hmm. Um, and you come to the site that I create, and I can pair you with, you know, the real needs and uh, people who need that solution and people that can enable it. And so, boom, done. <laughs> it, it's happened. It becomes real
1: it's incredibly optimistic. It is. Now you were recently at a conference called Transparency Camp. Mm-hmm. What is the transparency movement?
2: It's all about um, uh, forcing the government to uh, make their data accessible to the public. Mm-hmm. Uh, to make it an open system versus a closed one. You know, you could, now I won't name any names, but there are certain mm-hmm. uh, past administrations that were very secretive.
1: Yes. We don't need to make name things. We all know those things. making lots
2: of decisions that, you know, well, you didn't ask me, George. Um, and the premise of, of transparency is that with better data, citizens can become more involved and more informed and to, well, the way I look at it, they can be pissed off faster mm-hmm. and more effectively. Because the thing about democracy is that we have choice in our representatives and we can influence. We don't work, we don't We don't live in a totalitarian uh, regime. We presumably can flex, and uh, the Transparency Movement wants to enable more of that flexing.
1: Well, Gong, thank you for doing a lot of our flexing for us. Um, We've come to the end of the broadcast, sadly, Uh, so I'd like to thank you for being on the show today. I'd also like to thank the staff and my partners at Sterling Brands, especially Lisa Grant and my chief researcher, Jen Simon. Next week, I will be broadcasting live from the Y Conference in San Diego with guests Lorraine Wild, Andrea Pellegrino, Mark Randall, Liz Danzico, and Shel Perkins. Thank you for listening, and remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you next week.
0: Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters, right here on The Bottom Line in Business Talk, Voice America Business.
1: Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com.